Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. That's me. I've been doing this for the best part of three years now, but for listeners who might not have heard it before, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. In this episode, I went to London Somerset House to talk to Carmen Hiyosa, creator of Pinatex, a new non-woven textile made from pineapple leaves. Through the company Carmen founded after finishing a PhD on textiles at the Royal College of Art, Ananas Anam, the new material has been specified by brands such as Hugo Boss, Chanel and Mango for bags, shoes and clothes. It's even been used for a vegan hotel suite at the Hilton Hotel Bankside. Meanwhile, Pinatex production offers additional income to more than 700 families in farming communities and cooperatives in the Philippines where the pineapple leaves are collected. None too surprisingly, she's won a slew of awards, including the Arts Foundation Material Innovation Prize and the Cartier's Woman Initiative Award. I started by asking her about a quote, describing her as something of a goddess in the world of sustainable fashion. I cannot believe that. <laughs> anyway, that is just amazing to hear that. <laughs> well, thank you very much for doing this, Carmen. I really thank appreciate it. Um, was that all reasonably accurate, ignoring the goddess moment, obviously? Yes, yes. I mean, take the goddess moment out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. But anyway, I'm usually called the queen of pineapples, which sounds pretty okay. The queen of pineapples. Yeah, that's all right. that is all right, you yeah, know, yeah. because I think I probably have been close to pineapples and pineapple bits, you know, leaves and everything for quite a long yeah. time. So this is, oh, you're the queen of pineapples. Yeah, I'm, I can live with that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can we talk a little bit to begin with about, well, about where we are? We're in Somerset House in a tiny meeting cube. This is the smallest space we've ever done a podcast in. But why did you decide to locate the company that you founded? Why Somerset House? Why Somerset House? Well, we came from Innovation RCA because, you know, it is really the incubator for programs and projects that come from the Royal College. Uh, but as everything, we grew bigger and we just had to get out of there. It's like... Yeah, at the time I felt like oh, we're being kicked out. It was really a home where we started the company, where, you know, we really became uh, a mature company. But then we had to leave because, mm. you know, we were growing. And we were looking for places similar with this feeling of community and Somerset House came about. Uh, we came to see it and they said, yeah, because you can give back to the community. It's quite a strong community here. Uh, I can't think of any better place in London. So this is, I think it's a little bit because of our background as a company that they were quite happy to have us here. Because who else is here? You have Makerversity and all sorts of, of other companies. That's right. Uh, all sorts of other companies. I mean, we've got actually all kinds of little companies up here and in the second floor where we are. And then there's another place where there are more, uh, co I say more startup companies there as well. But there is an exciting and interesting from tech to fashion to, you know, we had the London, what is it? They just left. London Fashion Council was here as right. well. They just left now with the pandemic, I believe, because I'm not here that often now. Mm. So it's a nice place to be. How big is Ananas Anam? Am I pronouncing that correctly, by the way? Ananas Anam. Ananas Anam. Good. Yes. I'm nearly there. I'm yes. nearly there. Yes. So how, how many people nowadays? We're not a big company, you know. We are probably about 17 people. Um, it's about 12 people here. 
in London, which is the headquarters. But then we have a company in Spain, which is called Ananas Anam España. And that's going to be, uh, well, it's already looking after the fulfillment. So everything comes uh, from the Philippines to Spain and then is finished. The product is finished there, but then is shipped all over the world mm. from Spain. Mm. Uh, but also we are setting up a plant, which is like a fiber plant, R&D plant, and to develop the first stage of the project that is now, or the product that is now done in the Philippines, here because, well, here not in Europe, because right. we can uh, research, we can control, we can really do much more research and development in situ. So that is growing. There is just four people there, but, you know, I think after Christmas, the whole company is going to start growing. Right. And there is another company in the Philippines uh, they do have more people there, but then you've got the full amount of people in the communities, which is really where you can see the impact, yeah. uh, which are not directly connected to us, but we are working with them. Because you were living in Ireland. Are you still in Ireland? Where are you based personally? Yes, I, how do you work? I lived in Ireland longer than any place else. And then I moved here for to do this PhD mm. and then the company. We moved here. So I've been in London for 12 years, but... After this pandemic, in fact, I was coming from the Philippines in 2019 and I couldn't come back. I just left the Philippines two days before they closed. In here, it would have been very, very difficult to come back because I didn't have a place on my own. I was really sharing with people. So I said, I better go home, which is Ireland. So I'm still in Ireland. Okay. But I'm moving back to Spain to, to be with um, the okay. plant and, and all this new uh, research that we're going to do there. So you're moving back to Spain? Were you moving to the Philippines? No, to Spain. To Spain. But the pandemic then, because I'm quite interested in how this went for you. Yes. The, the pandemic was spent in Ireland for you? The pandemic was spent between Spain where I was locked down because it was a very strict lockdown. Yeah. I arrived there two days again. It was like running, you know, ahead. It was like a wave before the pandemic basically started to close all borders. So mm. I got to Spain two days later, it was closed. I was there for about six months. I mean, we couldn't go any place. No, we couldn't even get out of the house. You know, just 15 minutes out. Yeah, and that was a nice thing. Hopefully, it was nice. I was with my family and they have a dog. So it was, the dog was really the excuse to get out for 15 minutes. I was going to say, you're allowed minutes. to go out with the dog. Yeah. Yes, otherwise we wouldn't be able to go out. Uh, you know, it was super strict. And then I decided to go to Ireland because that's it's my place, my home. I'm close to the sea, you know, five minutes from the sea in Dublin. So that was, it's still perfect. Yeah. And was the company able to operate during the, um, the yes, crisis? Yes, we did. Like most companies, we were able to operate. And we went through difficult times, but, you know, we managed. And you learn how to work differently and do things differently. Mm. How are you operating now? I mean, is everybody in an office or are they partly from home or how are you working? Yeah, now? we are partly, I only come to uh, London, you know, on a every few weeks here. Uh, so some people do come maybe twice a week, sometimes three times a week, but most people do work at least part of the time uh, from their homes. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the place we have is fine, but it's getting small because now we have to spread so much. Mm. Shall we get into the reason why we're here, which is Pinatex? Yeah. I think it'd be great if we could tell listeners, I mean, what exactly is it? Pinatex is a new textile. It's a non-woven textile, which is plant-based and is plant-based, waste-based material. So Pinatex is made from the waste of the pineapple harvest. And once they harvest the pineapple, you have these very long leaves, maybe one meter 20, uh, 30 to 40 leaves, which are left 
they're left in the fields because they, they, I mean they plant the whole harvest because of the pineapples. Um, and this is what we use. We gather, I mean, we work with cooperatives. They gather the leaves in the fields. They bring them to a particular place. They extract the fibers, which is what we use. Mm. There is a lot of biomass left, which is, can be used as an organic fertilizer as well. So there is a beautiful value in this waste. It's really valorized twice already. Once with the fibers, then with this biomass, uh, which is really where all the nutrients are. So this what you know can give really nutritious bits to the mm. earth back to the earth right mm. so after that it goes to our center of company in close to manila still in the philippines where these fibers are purified because they've got impurities they've got um, pectins things that make them you know a leaf is firm and this is really we want something soft and pliable so that's done through enzymatic uh, processes enzymatic enzymatic Ooh, meaning what, what? Yeah, yeah, enzymes. Um, enzymes are chemicals. I mean, our saliva is enzymes, mm. and that's what helps to break down the food, right? So instead of using nasty chemicals, to put it that way, we use enzymes, meaning that, you know, there is no damage to the environment, basically. To, everything is to make sure that we do not really damage and hurt the environment, mm. to put it simply that way. And after that, it has to be carded, like you would card wool in a way or any fiber, and it's cut to a particular size. And then it has to go to the to the non-woven process, which is a, text, a textile process. Uh, if you think of felt, right? Felt is done as a non-woven. Millions and thousands of needles going up and down and up and down. And this fluffy fiber, which becomes the pineapple fiber, going as a... Like if you think of a fluffy cotton, you know, as we buy it when it's all padded like that. And it gets basically uh, needled together. So it's a mechanical process. Right. It's not a chemical process. Uh, and after that, we have uh, this made into rolls, you know, to particular length and particular width. And that is shipped to Spain. Basically, because in the Philippines, we still do not have the technology to finish the product, which we will do have, you know, eventually. And then in Spain, it's, it goes into another finishing textile process uh, using uh, resins and pigments. So we don't use water. You know, it doesn't go into a dyeing process. It doesn't go into this dye bath. It's a resin with a pigment together, so it gets... It's like a container where the resin and the pigment is. It, it's impregnated into that. And then there is some top coatings as well to make it strong. Uh, and then it goes through a mechanical process to give it back the fluidity and the softness that we want to have. And that's what it is, Pinatex. Right. And it comes out then as a roll of material? A sheet, it comes or? out as a roll of material, which usually there are maybe 30, 50 meters uh, long by 1 meter 60 wide. Right. So it's really a good way uh, because you can use it, particularly we use it a lot for shoes. And obviously you can use the same technology to cut it as you would do if you use either petroleum-based textiles or leather. But it's really, it, there's very little waste because it's a role. If you think of leather, you know, you've got, I mean, I worked with leather quite mm. a lot. You've got maybe 30% waste. So it's a very good way to make it terribly efficient as well. So it can be used for shoes. But what else can it be used for? Or does it get used for now? Now it gets used for shoes mainly, for bags, accessories. I mean, you can think of watches, straps, mm. 
things like that. It can be used in interiors as well. And this is what we're really starting, as you said, in the Hilton. It can be used in the automotive industry. We are working on that for a few years already. And it will, you know, it's... Like the car seats. The car seats, etc. So it's not ready yet. It takes quite a long time to do this, but it will be there maybe in a year's time. Um, And interiors, you've got different things. You've got seats, you've got panels. Look, we are here in this little nest. Little (laughs) nest. nest. I like that. Nest is good. Very romantic. Uh, And if you look around you, we are surrounded by petroleum-based fibers, right? Which is absolutely not very healthy. We're breeding this, mm. yeah. The chemicals, the things, yeah. Think no, that's about not reassuring, that. Carmen. It's not no. very reassuring. No. I know that, but the reassuring <laughs> part of this is that this is something that definitely we want to work on. We could really start making things like this. Everybody is going to need these little nest podcast podcast places, and if we can do something uh, using natural fibers without all these and the fumes and, and all these chemicals that they used, that is a future, a future way. We have developed a yarn as well, which is a beautiful yarn, super sustainable. So, you know, we are expanding as as we grow and mm. the research and development is ongoing as well. So this, this is going on all the time. Mm. But today the main market is definitely shoes and bags and the interiors are becoming more and more uh, relevant for us. Can we talk about why you decided to create this material in the first instance? Because as you said, you used to work in the leather industry, mm. right? I think I'm correct in saying you started your first business when you were you were 19. Not really. Uh, I went, sorry about oh, that. Oh, Sack the Researcher, which is me. Oh dear. Okay, well, I tell you what it is. I left, I left Spain at 19. Mm. At 22, I started my first business, so it's not too bad. Okay, all right. It's kind of nearly there, yeah. And it was to do with leather. Basically because I was in at school, uh, I always wanted to learn languages to travel. That was my thing. And uh, English is obviously a very good language to travel. And um, I had a teacher from Ireland, and I really somehow fell in love with Ireland, even when I was in Spain. So that brought me to Ireland. But I remember going to this hippie market, you know, this kind of market that it was in Dublin at the time. And it was the time of, you know, leather bags and all these things. They were very punched, very heavy leathers. And we thought with my partner at the time, gosh, we could do better than that. Mm. And we did so much better than that. You know, we used different leather, pliable, very simple, highly aesthetic, simple designs that they're still being I still see them when I go to Dublin. Some people, they, they, you know, they're 35 years old, these designs. That was the beginning of this, my first company working with leather. So why leather in the first instance? I mean, I know you went to the market and looked at these leather goods. Was leather in your background? Not at all, no. But because it was what was seemed to be selling a lot. And right. we thought, we could do something. I mean, totally not prepared for anything. You know, I remember uh, the first time we sold to a proper shop, they said, well, give us an invoice. And we didn't know what an invoice was. Now imagine. So that was pretty uh, basic. Yeah. (laughs) But we had a knack to make good design, very well made. um, And it was quite new at the time in a market that was quite saturated with heavy designs, heavy leathers, punching, this kind of thing. 
And it was quite a success. I mean, we ended up selling in places like Harrods and Liberty, Takashimaya in Japan, exporting everywhere. So yeah, that was a good experience. Mm. But was there a Damazine moment where you thought, I'm in the wrong place, I need to be doing something else? Oh yeah, of course, yes. I got consultancy work because we were good at our job, mm. right? And I'm quite a, quite a good designer, I believe. Uh, and then... Um, I went to all sorts of places, you know, from Asia to South America. Yeah, but I like to say this. I was coming from this luxury little company, feeling a little important because we were kind of very well known in Ireland. And suddenly I jump into places, let's say South America, certain countries where I could see so much poverty and so much need of help. And and I didn't know how to help sometimes because um, it was going from companies with 500 people making products in leather, but I could see the big gap between the top and the people working. I would speak to the women and say, how was, how long did it take you to come here? And they said, no, mom, I live here. But they wouldn't see the children for maybe three months. You know, I was pretty shocked. I had a, a small child at the time. And that brought me very, very close to the realization of my responsibility because somehow I started to realize I am really, in a way, responsible. Whatever I say, these people are the rippling down of my ideas and my thinking. And that brought me extremely close to my own responsibility as a designer to care, to really care of how and why my design was one way or another, or my advice to the other people, yeah? Because mm, you were consulting for the people I at was, the World Bank, I think. That's right, time, right, yes. So this came about, I mean, working with as I said, from very, very wealthy companies with very, I don't know, you know, all these people, little people working there, to working with uh, Quechuas and Aymaras up in the Altiplano, which were really indigenous communities that they really needed help bottom up because they really didn't know even how to bring the product to where, right? So it was, it was quite an extraordinary experience. But by the time I got to the Philippines, I could really start thinking on people and materials because, you know, leather, as you say, leather is not a very sustainable process, apart from being animal, everything. But I had not been confronted with the reality of what it is until I went to a particular kind of tanneries and I thought, oh my God, this is such a toxic, it feels toxic, smells toxic. You see the people and then that was it for me. Then I really got out of there and said, I'm not going to work with leather anymore. But I didn't have a plan B. I just knew that I couldn't do that way. So it was quite shocking for me also mm. to think, what am I going to do next? You know, sometimes you don't know, but you know what you don't want to know, which uh, is already pretty okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So how long did it take you to develop a plan B? Um, I tell you how it was. I realized, because this is what I do, I go to a country and I see what they have, what are the skills, what do people work up at? What are the traditions? And how can I use what is there and upgrade it through my own skills, which is design and innovation, really? They have in the Philippines extraordinary skills to work with natural fibers. So when this happened, I went to the director of the design center of the Philippines where I was working, and I said, look, you really should use your materials, your skills, and I'm sure you can do something better than, you know, using this leather and importing all these cheap 
accessories, you know, to 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 make something, uh, you know, from China, mainly Hong Kong, that I will never be able to do a good quality product with what I have in here. And I don't feel comfortable anymore to work with leather. But do something about what you have. Use what you have. And she said to my utter surprise, go ahead. Go ahead and do it. And I told her, I don't know anything about natural mm. fibers. But she did say, go ahead. And I did. And I did wonderful work because I was coming fresh from the outside. I was using traditional designs and traditional skills, but flipping them a little bit around to make them into today's world through, again, design and innovation to give value to the work, value to the raw material and value to the people. That was my aim. They were using pineapple leaf fibers already. That was a kind of traditional material in the Philippines, right? This is exactly how I discovered this mm. because I started to work with uh, weavers. And I tell you the truth. The first time I saw them doing this is called a piña cloth, they call it, right? Which is the whole length of the fiber knotted one to the other by hand, a little knot, they do it very quickly, and hand-woven. And it's so light that if there is a little bit of wind, it, it really makes a mess in the in, in the fiber, right? I cried. I really was so impressed thinking, my goodness, how can I help? Because to me, it's very important that tradition is one thing. We need to respect. We need to support. We need to keep our traditions alive because this is our heritage, right? But at the same time, by working with these weavers and natural dyers and developing this better designs, well, better, more contemporary designs, by working very intimately with these fibers, then at one point, that was the eureka moment, I thought, oh my God, they're so soft and they're so fine and they're so pliable that I can make a non-woven mesh. I didn't even know the word non-woven. It mm -hmm. was, in my imagination, I, I, I have a, a very clear way of seeing things. I imagine things and then you've got to make them. It may take 10 years, but that flash of split second, I could see these fibers like our skin, right? Going up and down and all being interwoven with each other. And I thought, I can do this. If I can do this, I could have this alternative to leather, which I was still looking for. That was the beginning. But then, as you say, you knew nothing about textiles at that stage. No. So you had to go and educate yourself. Is this how you end up at the Royal College of Art? That was my second education. <laughs> I had to go back because I was living in Ireland at the time and I went to the National College of Art and Design and I, yeah, because I realized I can't work with these weavers if I don't really know what they're doing. Mm. So I did a bachelor's degree and I did an MA. I got first class honors. I worked with natural dyes and natural fibers. Uh, so then I developed textiles at the time. But then halfway there, that's when this idea of if I can make a mesh, I can have a leather alternative. Uh, but then I had to really extend my knowledge, my research, and that's where I came to London, to the Royal College. Uh, because, you know, a new idea, it's today is so simple. I mean, we've got these alternatives, you know, plant-based textiles, which is a wonderful thing. They are growing every day, right? But when I started this, I was really the first one. And you say to people, I think I can do an alternative to leather with these fibers. And I promise you, it wasn't easy because, well, 
you know, until you don't see something, how can you believe that you're going to make an alternative to leather with fibers that nobody used before mm. industrially in this concept, not as a textile? Yeah, so it wasn't easy. But, you know, this is a good place, the UK, and Royal College is a fantastic place because it was the first time, I promise, the first time that I went to a place, I presented my idea and they said, totally nonchalant, like, yeah, okay, you go to the textile department. And I thought, my God, they got it. They got it. <laughs> <laughs> it was so wonderful. I mean, you were, I hope you don't mind me saying, yeah. 62, I think, when you, when yeah. you received your PhD. Yes. It was a curious sensation being surrounded by, I guess, significantly younger people at the, at the Royal College. No, not really. There would have been enough mature students, but, you know, to me, that's quite a normal thing to do. You have an idea, you need to do it, you need to research, you just have to get on with it. It didn't really bother me at all, and I never felt too old or too different or too strange. It's a very nice thing to be in a place like that, because I would have a lot of experience because I came from work. You know, I worked from, I was 22, as we mm. were saying. Mm. And then you mix that with ideas. I remember when I first heard this, uh, there was a lot of Taiwanese and Chinese in, you know, around that time. Well, there's probably more now. And they think differently. Their culture is so different. And I thought, what an extraordinary and wonderful privilege I have to be here with people that think so differently. And if we can really share all this, something happens. So I always felt very connected and very challenged, which is a good thing to do things, new and challenging. So, no, I felt pretty okay. Yeah, and no, it's interesting. I'm quite intrigued by how you you got there. I mean, we've told some of the story, mm. but I'm kind of interested almost in going back a bit further, if we could, because mm. you were born in Salas, yes, a, a small town in northern Spain. I think yes. your family made clocks and jewellery. You weren't tempted into the family business. Oh, my father would have loved that. Yeah, but I wasn't tempted because it's too static. You know, I no, the place was too small for me, but. And you got your research 100% right hey. there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Yes, the little business, family business, has been there from 18, I think it's 34. Mm. So it's about now nearly four generations, coming into four generations. But I didn't fit into anything so traditional and so kind of static. But it helped me quite a lot because my father was an excellent, excellent craftsman. And I'm, I think I'm quite good with my hands. So... It wasn't for me. No. I mean, you said it in a TEDx talk I watched. You described yourself or you said you were always a rebel. I'm wondering how that might have manifested itself. Gosh, I got into trouble. For, I was getting <laughs> into trouble forever from, you know, teachers going to my father and say, he knew. He just said, oh, Maria del Carmen. That's my full name. He always called me by Maria del Carmen. Maria del Carmen. ¿Qué pasa? What happens now? So what did you do? I'm intrigued. Oh, gosh. From fighting with all the boys, I always went to mixed schools, which was, I think, a pretty healthy thing to do. Uh, fighting until I was always winning. I mean, you see how small I am, but somehow I was really fighting with the teachers because some of them, they were very strict and, and saying, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to. I think it's not supposed to be like that. Uh, okay, my mother died already, so I can say that, you know, I was kicked out because I was too of a troublemaker. Your mom died when you were young? My mom died this year. Oh, this year? <laughs> no, no, it's fine. She was 100, so imagine. Wow. Um, but I think I just didn't conform, you know. 
And when you don't come from in a very traditional background, you you do get into trouble. I mean, my skirts would have been short, and I don't know what, and and going out, yeah, trouble. (laughs) Anyway, but I think it was only because I just had this urge to, to, to do something different from what I was surrounded by. That's, I think that's what it is. Yeah. And it comes out in whichever way. And it came out by leaving. It came out by starting something completely new. But being totally independent, so most of my life I had really hardly any money to, re- to do things. And the money I had, I would use it to, for what I really wanted to do, which was study and work, work and study. This is my life, really. Uh, this is how I have done what I have done. I think I saw in one of the talks you saying you've had five companies over the years. Have you always run your own businesses? Yeah. No, apart from being a consultant to yeah. World Bank and the European community. Well, you still are a consultant running your own business. Mm. But you never wanted yeah. to work for anybody else? No, it's not in my character. And I come from small entrepreneur background family as well. So no, I never worked for anybody. Mm. Mm. Yeah. There was a delightful post that you put on LinkedIn recently where you're celebrating the fifth anniversary of Pinatex. It was interesting because you almost talk about the material like it's alive. It's kind of in the third person. Is that how you feel about it? Yes. I feel uh, I feel it's, it's like a child, you know. I mean, I gave birth really to this product. Um, and it was difficult at the beginning to, to really let go. But now, you know, there's a company, there's a fantastic structure. There is a CEO running the company. There is researchers and, you know, it is their product as well. So it it was like that, but you have to learn as, as a mother nearly how to let go. Uh, but it's still, you know, it's still, I look at it, I think you can be better, you can do this. So I always look at it as a, it should be better, it can be better, mm. definitely. You also mentioned your mother saying that she came from Spain, saw your exhibition at the RCA, and she said, this is what you mean by your work, now I understand. So did they approve of what you were doing? Would they rather have you been back in Spain with them? They could never understand. My father died before I started this part of the journey, but my mother could never understand because what she wanted for all her children was to really have a steady job, traditional, you know. I mean, I never had a steady job. And Mm. she kind of knew. I never really said too much like, I'm in trouble, but she kind of knew. Mothers kind of know these things. It was only at that point when she saw the whole product, the whole research, the products there, that she did really get the full picture and say, okay, now she was okay. Mm. And then it's like, are you selling? Uh, that was quite quite reassuring for me, you know, because I was feeling, I don't want my mother to be uncomfortable, but I couldn't say that I was doing, I wasn't a teacher, I wasn't, you know, anything. So, yeah, that that was a good, a nice moment. You've described Pinatex throughout the conversation as, a, as an alternative to leather. I mean, is that how you see it? Not a replacement, but an alternative. Because a lot of the press kind of talks about it as if it would, you know, that it's a direct replacement. It is not a direct replacement. Mm. Absolutely not. I mean, leather has been there forever. It's a good material. It's also a, a byproduct of the meat industry. And it's super strong. I mean, if you look after it, it can last for a hundred years. Mm. Pinatex is not the same. It has other qualities. It comes from a waste. It really brings improvement to people and planet uh, so the qualities it will not last for a hundred years right uh, but have a look these are my boots they're very smart they're very smart but they're already five years nearly old right and they're there 
So it, it lasts as long as I think it, it can last. Yeah. You have to take care of it. Can we talk a bit about some of its qualities in that case, in terms of repair? I mean, how easy is it to repair? Mm, look, look, this has <laughs> been repaired. Can you see those two little patches in there? Yes, I can. Okay, because that is a very weak point, okay, because the flexing, flexing, flexing. I mean, this is about five winters, four years, right? So I went to the shoemaker and I repaired that. I put a patch like you would do with a beautiful pair of shoes in the old ways, which we have to go back to yeah, yeah. some old ways. You take care of it. I put some polish today because I was in the country this weekend. And, um, and, uh, so you can use boot polish like you Oh, yeah. You can yeah. use it like you for your shoes. You can put polish. They get uh, water resistant, waterproof. If you put, you know, proper good uh, polish and they come up nice and shiny, as you can see. Mm. Really, it's pretty good. But not only that, when you work with people like, Hugo Boss and these bigger companies, you have to go through all the tests, all the technical tests. So tensile, you know, tear strength, flexing strength, water resistant. Uh, it has gone through everything that needs to be for these markets. So it is really as strong as it needs to be for the market of a pair of shoes, for mm. example. Does it develop a pattern like, say, leather wood, you know, where it kind of shapes to your body and your feet? It does. Yeah. Again, you can see that. You can yeah. see that the wrinkles and everything, uh, it does. And it, it, yeah, it, it has its own personality. But if you know where it comes from, why is it important? It, to me, it's, it's quite precious, you know. And what finishes does it come in, Carmen? What, what is it available as? If I was looking to specify it, what would it, any color or how? how oh, yes, work? we've got probably about 12 colors at the moment. You can see, oh, look at that. that those are the shoes from... Paul Smith and uh, Hugo Boss. Yes, you can you have, see that. I should tell you, the listeners, within our small cube, there are two pairs of shoes, with <laughs> or two shoes at least, of two different colours, one brown, one red. Absolutely. So it takes colour very well. It's, 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 a, it's a cellulose fibre. It takes colour very well, so we can change colours. We've got nearly any colour you like. Mm. And we've got different finishes as well. We've got a much stronger finish, which is more for the interiors and the automotive industry, uh, which I have not in here, but that's even stronger. Uh, but it has, it's, you know, it doesn't look exactly like you can nearly see the fibres in here. Mm. But that's for another market, yes. Right. It's super versatile. We've got a yarn as well uh, coming, which... I also have there. So the potential of this uh, material is, is enormous. We can do so many things. Again, looking at this, I'm thinking, yeah, podcast, uh, cocoons, we can do something. <laughs> so, you know, it really keeps going and going. And can we talk about end of life? Mm. Is it biodegradable? Because you talk about cradle to cradle, and sometimes I think you talk about it as an ambition. Are you there with it yet? Will this thing disappear when it's finished? How do you dispose of it? It can disappear in the right conditions, which right. there's still, it's a very difficult thing to do, as yeah. you know, for certain things to have them in the right conditions of humidity and, and temperature, etc. But we're working on that. And for me now, it's not about disappearing, but it's upcycling. And if you think, and we're doing testing on that, the material comes from fibers. And now as they do with jeans, for example, we know, okay, they shred it again, mm. they make a yarn. We can do the same with this. So eventually, we definitely will upcycle the product, right. not really just go back. I mean, it's nearly a waste to bring it back too soon and, you know, 
the whole thing about circular economy and cradle to cradle is to keep the material as long as possible within a cycle of being used. How would you go about upcycling this? You can't just throw them in your recycling centre at the moment and expect no. somebody to do something with them, right? No, you have to. That's why it's we haven't sorted that one out. Right. You know, we have to go little step by step. Mm. There wasn't even a supply chain when when I started working with this, but we are working on it. Um, and if we're speaking, possibly a year's time, I will probably tell you more about this. Uh, but the idea it is really to, particularly now that we are going to have uh, this plant in Spain, which is you know active that there is a place where you can bring the product or send the product and it would be. But because we are a business to business, not a business to people B2C, okay, if we look at shoes, they've got so many components, we're only doing one part. Mm. So the whole idea is to design in a way that we design for this assembly. And this is really part of my battle and my aim as well, to make sure that we eventually design products for this assembly so they can be reused. At the moment, it's extremely difficult because we don't really know the glues they use. You probably have 40 or more materials in a pair of shoes. So we are still dependent on proper collaborations and clients that they want to do it with us. So do clients want to do it with you? Because you're asking for quite a lot in that case, aren't you? Yes, I know. They're not just specifying your material, but you're also saying what we want you to do is design these garments or design these shoes or in such a manner that they can be disassembled and then that our pinotex can be upcycled. We will get there. Mm. We're not there yet, but we will get there 100% because yeah. I think we need to, you know. It's, it's our responsibility, definitely. You talk about, which I think is really interesting, not just designing the product, but also designing the production chain. How did you go about doing that? You know, I had companies manufacturing leather goods, so I'm, I'm quite hands-on. I love factories anyway, mm. because in factories you get the ideas. I, I'm not a person that will sit and think, oh, I can create this lovely shape. No, no, you create a shape or you create something within the limits of what is going to be made from, if you know, machines, obviously. Uh, so what did you ask me? The production chain, how you go about designing it, creating it. Exactly. So there wasn't a production chain because it was only, as we said, small communities using these fibers. So the way we did was, number one, in the Philippines, I went to see the best, which it was the best, uh, possibly the only one at the time, non-woven company there. And they were doing things like for cars, interiors, you know, polyester, polyuro thing. And I said to this man, look, I have this idea. Just to give you an idea how it works. I would like to make this, but I need help. And he looked at it, he said, I had the same idea 20 years ago, but I didn't do anything about it. I will help you because this will help the Philippines and the people. And that was the beginning of it. He opened the door because he was a local industrialist. He opened the door to speak to the some farming communities. Um, the government had uh, very primitive machines, but there was something there already. So that was the beginning, basically with one community we're still working with, um, trying to do the first 100 kilos, then 500 kilos was extraordinary. Then to really see how we could purify these fibers. Uh, my goodness, it takes so long mm. and it takes so much... It's not energy, it's about so much actually love, I have to say, you know, love and vision and responsibility because the people that helped me at the beginning, 
they did it not because of any money whatsoever, but they did it because they felt this will be good for the Philippines, this will be good in the textile industry, I will help you. How could I go into these huge industrial places like non-woven and say to these guys, hey, can you do a few meters for me? They would have to stop everything. It would cost me a fortune mm. and I had no fortune whatsoever. So this is the beautiful thing of Piñatex. I think it really attracts its vision of really um, helping and bringing a solution from a waste, it, it takes or it brings the best out of people. I really think so. And you had some extraordinary brands with you working pretty early on. Ali Capolino came in early, Camper. That's right. I mean, did they need persuasion? Are you very persuasive? Um, I think they were quite happy to do it because it's a new material. I mean, you know, I would be talking to the designers and they thought, wow, interesting. Let's see what happens. But I mean, the luck, you know, Ali Capilino, Camper, mm. Puma, to do these things, I was completely over the moon thinking, oh my God, I only have a few <laughs> meters and they're going to use it. How incredible. But this is what I'm talking about. There is something about it, particularly at the time, because it was really such a new material that people feel curious, feel interested, feel when they know the story, they really want to be part of in a way. And do people like Hugo Boss and Chanel, did they come to you? Did you go to them? How did those relationships begin? I think we probably met both of them. Uh, we were probably at Premier Vision, something like that, one of these trade shows. I remember with Chanel, it was the end of the, the, the show and this person came and suddenly they give you a card or something think, oh my God, what is this? Everybody is looking, particularly at the time, but even now, but now it's more kind of officially open, it's out there, all these new alternative materials, looking for alternatives. It is really, you know, I think this is part of our success, mm. looking for alternatives. And of course, the next stage is looking for alternatives that can be upscaled, that we are reliable, that we can, they can order thousands of meters and we can do it as it happened with Nike. But this is the times, isn't it? I mean, here we are, COP26. Uh, I was at a conference this five days. It was called Vision for the Future. This is a vision for the future in a way. You mm. know, we represent this future uh, in materials and it's also very transparent and very clear in all it takes to make. You know, the technicalities, everything is there. Uh, there is no greenwashing whatsoever with our product. Even the way we work as, as a company, you know, we're a B Corp. We have to be responsible. And I think this is what the world needs and companies are looking for as well. I was watching a second TEDx talk that you did <laughs> fairly recently, beginning of the year. You're kind of popular on the TEDx circuit. You're launching a foundation with the aim of yes. encouraging children's creativity. Absolutely. Well, tell me the details of that. What, yes. where, how did that come about and what are you doing? Thank you for asking that question. That's okay. Yes, it's nice. <laughs> um, you know, it came from when I was doing my PhD, I had this I know it sounds terribly silly, visions, because I visualize everything, you know, of how can we help with the material through storytelling and making children, because, because we know, right, the schools are less and less creative, the creative field is being basically shrinking all the time, and I feel so extremely responsible because for me, the creative world is my world, is real, and is so important, particularly for children. Storytelling is an extraordinarily powerful tool as well to bring about open imaginations, okay? If I say, the sky is purple, I don't want you to tell me, no, no, it's blue, right? So make stories, make children expand and not be really... Um, uh, square up in a, in a very strict curriculum. This is very important mm. for me because they are the future. 
So my idea was, if we can share, and we did a workshop in London, it was wonderful to see, our story with children. Every kid in the world needs a backpack to go to school. How can we co-design this backpack? And we did it, right? So they actually do the idea, I need something here for my lunch, I need this for this. Um, in Piñatex, because Piñatex has a beautiful story, it's really linking, you know, the nature, the planet with people working in this. Uh, you know, every kid relates to this and it's an important one. But then they feel responsible because they are going to build their own school bag and they're going to help the next door boy there or girl because, oh, I can't do that stitch like that. Can you help? So theoretically, this is the idea, right? That a school bag can change the world because we could really start giving this creativity, imagination, empathy and share it with the children by making because it's so important. I mean, we don't make anymore. You know, it's like tuck, tuck, you, you pass you, you laptop, whatever it is. Um, but making is so important. It brings us back to the reality of who we are. I mean, this is maybe a very grandiose thing, but it is. I mean, it can be making a soup, making bread, making... Uh, the product by yourself. It's teaching. It's another dimension in the mind as well. So that was the idea of a school bag can change the world. But now the foundation, I really like to say this if I can, the foundation has to go farther than that because even since then, I realized that it's all about regeneration. And if we don't regenerate our planet, our land, our earth, we will not have space to have these kind of programs, workshops. So what do we need to do? We need to think about people's, children's food, okay? If you feed the body, the brain, the brain has to be fed as well as the body, right? Otherwise, how can we work? And a lot of these places in the Philippines, the children are not very well fed. I mean, they go to school maybe with not the right food in their bellies. And how am I, who am I to go there and say, let's, think creatively when they're hungry. That doesn't make too much sense. So we have to link that with regeneration, meaning the land, which means that to me it's important that we go back to the plant, the plantations, okay, these pineapple plantations that we have. They're mainly monoculture as well. We have to make sure that we plant and we grow this, this material that we use, right, even if it is a byproduct, in a way that it feeds back gives back nourishment to the earth, you know, no, no fertilizers, whichever way it is, which, I mean, we know we can do that, and link that with the local community, which is the school and the, you know, the, the, the farming community to make sure, okay, let's grow this in a particular way. Let's grow it in a way that we can show children that, and, and the agriculture as well. We can grow pineapples. We can grow pineapples in a way that we've got maybe coconuts planted in there and some other crops in there. We can really link that with the children, with the schools, to make sure that what we are learning and we are this nourishment that we give to the earth, we give it to the children, and then we can work with them. I hope it's not too complicated what I'm saying. No, no. But I hope it makes sense because we cannot work anymore as a unit. We have to see the whole picture on where... Where am I today that I can make sure that the whole balance of this planet is met? It comes from the earth, it comes from nourishment, it comes, then it goes to the children, then the children can be nourished, you know? This is how I see it today. The foundation will be that. Okay. But at the moment, the foundation you're making, you're making these school bags with kids. How many kids are you working with? This is still, you see, the foundation will start next year. This oh, is why I'm saying, I'm yeah. sorry. No, that's okay. So our, our hour, Carmen, 
is very nearly up. Um, so we're on the kind of final question, really, which is the future of Pinatex. We've talked a lot about its qualities and where it might be specified. It sounds to me like the notion of upcycling and towards the end of life is your biggest challenge. But where else do you see the material going? The material now and the processes are at the stage of upcycling. This is where the company is, meaning um, upscaling the whole process. Right. So we're going from having a pilot's and working in the Philippines to start in other parts of the world. So the idea is that we will bring all the knowledge and what we have learned to upscale the process uh, into other parts of the world uh, because because it can be done and we, we would like to do that. Uh, so we are really at this point of making sure that if we go into the automotive industry, we can produce thousands of meters and that is really where we are going uh, we are upscaling the processes uh, we are getting you know new materials as well i mean new products out there but it's basically the upscaling to make sure that it is suitable for this market is mm. the most important thing so what's it need to do to be suitable for those markets the automotive you're talking particularly the most important thing is that we really have the continuity of the volume the quality to make sure that we really uh, you know, can cater for this market. I mean, the volume is the most important thing. Don't forget that we are the first ones using these fibers and it has to really be, uh, you know, a constant flow of fibers to make sure mm. that the product, it's there. We can't really start working with somebody like that and then say, oh, we have no more fibers. So we, we have to really do this scaling up throughout the pineapple world, if you like, mm. the right way, which is really taking into account, you know, our values and our principles in the company. So, getting bigger, getting new bigger, products, new products, working on systems for end of life. Absolutely. And what's the future for you? You're moving to Spain, I understand. Yeah, I'm moving there because that's where the the big thing is, mm. which is you know the research and development is going to be there. The foundation will be there as well. Um, so the future is really to move to keep thinking ahead, as we were thinking. This is you know this um, cubicle places, uh, how can we do something better than what it is now? It's always thinking ahead, thinking ahead of new products, new ideas, how to make it better. And for me, the most important thing is going to be how can we really link people and planet and how can we do something that benefits them, not linked with the commercial side, that's why the foundation is going to be very important, but really care in the way that we can with all our experience, with all our, all our knowledge. And the possibility that these fibres have, you know, they're like magic fibres in a way. <laughs> <laughs> magic fibres. Well, that's a lovely, lovely, lovely place to leave it. Carmen, thank, thank you. you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much to you. Thank you. And to discover more about Carmen, Pinatex and Ananas Anam, go to ananas-anam.com. As ever, there are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Finally, and this is really important, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern 
and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message, the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.